0: Hi, I'm Diana Potential, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. The work of medical librarians is essential and varied. They provide information that can improve patient care, promote public health, and support medical education and research. They exist in academic medical libraries, hospitals, corporate libraries, and insurance companies, and their work is constantly evolving with technology and the implementation of new programming. This episode, we're highlighting two initiatives started by medical librarians who presented at the 2022 Medical Library Association Annual Conference. First, I speak with Jennifer Davis, Gail Kwame, and Lachelle Smith. While working at Augusta University in Georgia, the three collaborated on virtual reality programs that teach health science concepts in a more engaging way. Then, American Library's managing editor, Tara Dankowski, discusses the ins and outs of starting a specialized book club for pediatric hospital staff with Lynn Kish and Kyle Horn, both of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Jennifer Davis, Gail Kwame, and Lachelle Smith helped create two different health science-related virtual reality programs at Greenblatt Library at Augusta University in Georgia. The first project focused on teaching data literacy and management. The second focused on simulating experiences with patients with health conditions, such as visual impairments or physical limitations resulting from Parkinson's disease or a stroke. We discussed their collaboration and how students responded to these programs. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, Can you briefly describe what your presentation at the Medical Library Association conference was about?
1: Um, This is Gail, and I'll answer this. The presentation at the Medical Library Association conference was about our use at the Greenblatt Library uh, in Augusta of virtual reality for a couple different purposes, um, particularly for the health science. And I would welcome Jennifer and Lashelle to add on to that if they want to.
2: Hi, this is Jennifer. And so our project, um, Lachelle and I collaborated on a project for uh, creating a virtual reality escape room game about, uh, that would teach data management skills to health sciences students, particularly uh, doctoral students, but it doesn't, anybody could really play play and use the game but that was our our pilot program was our was uh Lachelle was the allied health librarian and she uh was it was embedded with our PhD physical therapy program so that was our sort of pilot uh subject group that we created this game for and we so we created this well, we did not create it, and I'm kind of jumping around. Uh, we collaborated with undergraduate senior computer science students who create, helped us create this game as part of their senior project so that they could graduate. Um, so we worked with these students and their advisor to create this virtual reality escape room game that taught um, health science students data management skills Um, for their research.
1: So the other project, yes, we created the space, but also there had been some virtual reality experiences built uh, in collaboration and partnership with our medical college, as well as our College of Computer and Cyber Sciences, and also in partnership with Kennesaw State University that has a gaming development degree program. And so those VR experiences were emulations of vision deficits from things like macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy, as well as the effects of Parkinson's disease. And then people are asked to virtually do certain tasks like open a pill bottle or open a shampoo bottle and turn on the shower and those kinds of things. Uh, and there was also one for post-stroke rehabilitation. Um, So really the idea of those uh, projects and experiences were to build empathy in health sciences students who would be dealing with patients with those issues.
0: What makes VR uh, an ideal or unique passageway for health sciences and wellness education in students?
1: the advantage of VR is it's a very experiential and very immersive. And so it allows a person to really experience a situation as though it were almost real. So it's 3d uh, you're in a space or in a room that is, you know, very close to what it might be like to be in a room with, you know, a real pill bottle or a real shampoo bottle or what have you. So um, to me, it's, you know, kind of as close as you can get uh, to sending somebody into, say, an elderly person's apartment, you know, and having them up in a pill bottle and that kind of
3: thing. This is Michelle. And I would say ditto to what Gail already mentioned um, and just, just adding or just touching on on the point um, that you know VR provides a lifelike, you know, scenario um, that students can actively explore and work and work within as opposed to like passively listening to lectures, especially when it comes to, you know, data, data management principles and practices.
0: I'm wondering how did the idea to implement VR at the library come about? Um, Did Greenblatt already have a VR space used for other um, departments or was this one specifically developed for this program? Initially, there was not a
3: virtual reality space within the library and this came about after our projects. And I would say Gail and Jen were the people leading the efforts to create a virtual reality space within the library.
2: Research data management principles are not always the most exciting thing to learn about. Um, and so we wanted to create something that would get these students more uh, engaged. And it was a fun project, something new for us to do. Um, I have no VR or IT experience Um, Lachelle does. And I I, honestly, I'm not sure about Gail, but that was, it was a very uh, new thing for me to develop personal skills of my own as well.
0: As librarians, um, you know, what kind of things did you learn throughout this process of, you know, working with VR and, and IT stuff? And What sort of things did you have to consider in terms of budget or other logistics and also as far as like was there already a room that was free for you to use or you know things like that
1: let me go back to the uh, previous question about kind of how did this happen Um, that happened because i was approached by some folks from our medical college as i mentioned they had already started Kind of working with virtual reality, and we're in partnership with the College of Computer and Cyber Science. But they asked if we might be willing to designate a virtual reality space in the library uh, as part of their, um, you know, to, as a way to expand that program and that project through the medical college. So we, we, I inquired with our director at the time, and she said yes. And the advantage of having a space like that in the library is that the library is open, expanded hours, and so the students could access that room and the equipment whenever the library was open. Um, But uh, we ended up kind of uh, co-opting what had been a study room in the library and using that as a space. It's probably as small as you would want to go for something like this. It was pretty small. But the system that Jen and Lachelle have, as well as I purchased a second system for that other project, is more portable. And you can put the transmitters on tripods and kind of set it up anywhere. So it's pretty slick that, you know, you're not limited to a designated space per se. The things we had to think about were who's going to be in charge, uh, who's going to monitor this thing, who's going to troubleshoot the thing, how are we going to get the equipment checked in and out. And so we had to work very closely uh, for the space in the library with our access services department. Um, It made a lot of sense for them to be involved because the room was very close to our information slash circulation desk. um, And they would be the ones checking the equipment in and out. Um, But we had to come up with some policies and procedures. And truthfully, I was aware of a colleague in Florida that had implemented something similar a couple years prior And, uh, so I contacted him and asked him what they were doing in terms of policies and procedures. And I told him imitation is the highest form of flattery. (laughs) So we um, kind of modified what he had already done at his library and came up with the policies and procedures for the space at the library.
0: Can you walk me through what the games looked like and if they were able to be played by multiple people at once, or if it was just one student at a time?
2: We have multiple sets of VR equipment. So one student can wear a set, um, but that project, but what they're seeing is also projected on a screen. And so like when we did the pilot, when Lashelle and I did the pilot program with the with physical therapy PhD students, we had them actually play in groups. And so, and they could take turns wearing the equipment. Now that time was during COVID. So, well, in any time we we had disinfectant wipes and, and whatnot to clean mm-hmm. the equipment. But one person, one student would wear can wear the equipment but the other students could guide them and help them because they could see on the screen what the person wearing the equipment could see. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Um, Building off that question, how did students respond to these projects and and using virtual reality?
3: I can say students, um, we did have students take a survey when we did the pilot program and I can say it was well received by the students. Um, you know, they did offer some suggestions and that's because we had them at the time playing it in a in a different environment. Um, and we took in their suggestions and presented it to the students that um, we, we were working with. But it was it was well received and they actually students appreciated that we thought of implementing virtual reality, especially an escape room. Um, because escape rooms, I guess they're still popular, but at the time they were pretty popular. So taking something, a concept, and like Jim mentioned, it's a concept like a topic like data management and building that in to uh, like a virtual reality escape room space. They just thought that that was like really innovative and it actually helped them engage with the content better as if, as opposed to um, a lecture So I would say it was well-received.
0: Awesome. And I'm wondering uh, if we could go back and talk a little bit more about the partnership with the uh, computer science students. What was it like to collaborate with them based off, you know, how did you pick the topics and how did um, the students kind of create the games with those topics in mind? Um, I think Jen and I mentioned what
3: we wanted to do Um, we spoke with Gail, and Gail referred us to one of the computer science um, advisors and a faculty member, and we were aware that students had to complete a capstone project for, as like a graduation requirement, so we reached out to the computer science faculty member, you know, let them know this is, you know, what we wanted to do, and we submitted our proposal to The faculty members and then students had a choice whether they wanted to select our project so thankfully they selected our project as one of the projects they would like to work on as their capstone project and jen and i um, gave them ideas of this is what we want in the modules and that helped them of how they wanted to incorporate the puzzles within
0: the virtual reality escape room space so, my last question here is if any of you have any advice for medical libraries or other libraries who want to implement VR in their programming, um, any tips, tricks, anything to watch out for as a potential challenge, things like that.
3: I just want to stress the point of the power of partnership um, and leveraging the relationships that you have. Um, you know, like we, like I said, Gail was really instrumental. And connecting us with a computer science faculty member, but we had to first reach out to Gail, share our, our, de- our ideas and don't be afraid to share your ideas with other, other colleagues. And then Jen reached out to me, you know, about like this idea and I'm like, oh, well, hey, well maybe I can leverage my partnership with the physical therapy department, you know? So I can't stress the power of partnerships and collaborations.
1: Um, also, I guess we should mention that both of these projects were funded from an outside source through the network of the National Library of Medicine Regional Office. Um, and so, you know, we had to go through our sponsored programs office. Um, and so it's, it always takes longer than you think when you're in, involved with external funding sources. So allow time for all of that when you're um, considering doing something like this. For
2: me, it was. It was a, a big learning experience. I think I mentioned before, I have like, I have no IT or computer VR experience. Um, I learned a lot during the the process of how equipment works, how, and I didn't get into the nitty gritty of like programming and that. Um, so I would definitely echo what Gail and Lachelle said about partnering with people who have a good sense of how these, these systems work um, before jumping into it yourself.
0: Pediatric hospital staff undergo many stressors serving their young patients. To alleviate that stress, Children's Hospital Los Angeles clinical and research librarian Lynn Kish, along with program manager Kyle Horn, created Hardback Life, a book for pediatric hospital staff aimed at creating empathy and fostering connection. American Library's managing editor Terry Dankowski speaks with Kish and Horn about the results of their pilot program. I'm
4: Lynn Kish. I'm the clinical and research librarian at Children's Hospital Los Angeles.
5: And my name is Kyle Horn. I'm the Literally Healing Program Manager.
6: How did the idea for Hardback Life, um, a book club for pediatric hospital staff, how did that idea come about? What uh, goals did you have in mind for the pilot program and what outcomes were you envisioning for participants?
4: I think it's fair to say that this came as a twinkle in my eye. Um, I usually tell people I'm a medical librarian with the heart of a children's librarian. Um, When I was even in library school, it was that question of what kind of librarian do you want to be and I'm like I want to do children's services or, or hospital medicine and They said, that's not a thing. And so I kind of proved them all wrong. (laughs) Um, So I had previous work promoting medical humanities. I was at the University of Southern California on their health science campus. And I got to do blind date with a book there, which was really well received. I worked to bring um, book events and speakers such as Ross Chast and John Corey Whaley to kind of talk about their published works that had a little foot in, in medicine and the health sciences.
5: Yeah, and then at that point, Lynn happened to run into me and, and we had this wonderful opportunity to, to kind of talk about what this could be, what it could look like, because one thing we were finding, so Literally Healing's a program that gives free books to patients, family members, whether it's brother, sister, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, it doesn't matter, every single uh, patient and their family member each receives a free book every day they're at the hospital. So every year we gift about 65,000 books away and our clinicians get to see that, they get to be involved in it. And so the question we kept getting asked is, great, so can I get a book? And we're like, okay, doctor, okay, nurse, like we wish we could, but we can't. And they're like, well, can we have something to do with you? And so it really was this moment where Lynn and I were talking and you know, I said, we have these clinicians and staff members in general, beyond clinicians, who have a real interest in engaging in this space And Lynn was like, well, there's this great idea over here. (laughs) And we kind of thought, you know, we can take this and we can bring it together because we really believe in the impact that reading can have, both on the individual, but also on the community as well. So that opportunity to give our staff who are really going through a lot here at the hospital, even before COVID, you know, it's hard work. It's no matter what you do here, you're really invested in um, a lot of what our patients and families are going through in that environment. Uh, So to be able to provide this for them was really such a wonderful opportunity because the health humanities, they... They offer different ways of thinking about human history, culture, behavior, and experiences. And then it kind of allows us to be um, able to dissect that as practitioners and critique it. It can influence practices and priorities. So it really provides this wonderful opportunity, not only to like help benefit our individuals and our communities by reading these books, but then also the practice and the environment in which we provide care here at CHLA.
4: Yeah. And I think that second part of your question, too, of what did we have in mind for the pilot program? It's it truly was. Will anybody show up? And if people show up, will they come back? Um, We also envision it being truly for everyone who works in the hospital. Um, We tend to think about our clinicians the most, but it's not just clinicians at our hospital. I mean, we have researchers that do amazing work, but doesn't always feel as connected to the patients and families in the hospital. Um, One of my favorite days is when a security guard stopped by our tabling event and he's like, can I participate? And I'm like, yes. Um, So having that be the the big thing of like, this isn't just for physicians, this isn't just for clinicians, this really is, if you're coming into the pediatric hospital and providing service, we want you in this book club.
5: And I think that's something really important to keep in mind because when you think about the work that we do, you know, and I I can remember so many times where uh, family members or um, our EVS staff, so these are, you know, individuals who are potentially like cleaning the rooms and helping to really keep our our environment safe. And um, we have found that there's times where families might actually be opening up more to them because they see them multiple times a day, whereas they might not see their doctors or feel they have that connection or really feel the ability, um, when you, especially when you're thinking of power dynamics, to to maybe open up to that doctor in the same way that they can to that person who's in there, you know, in their space, just kind of being present. And so that that's a that's a burden that a lot of staff members hold in our our hospital that we don't necessarily think about. Um, and so what's really beautiful about this is a, it opens up a, a collaborative environment for individuals, whether you're a security guard, whether you're an EVS team member, whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a therapist, um, or, or an administrator to really come together and um, bond over uh, the shared experience of reading this book and being involved in the book club.
6: Um, that's an interesting point, And I'm glad you're, you know, kind of talking about the whole community. Um, it, it, one thing that, you know, is present and, Pediatric hospital staff deal with so much stress, compassion fatigue, burnout. Um, And you did mention that some approached you about, you know, some type of program or involvement. Um, But how did you get staff members to participate? Um, How did the program work to accommodate your audience or make it easy for them to kind of read these books and and share their thoughts about them?
5: Yeah, so we started out at a wellness fair. This was right before COVID. So it was in person. People love these because you'd go there and you'd get all the swag. Um, So we had a table there and we just had like a little fun handout that basically was like a whole bunch of uh, book titles in emojis. So we'd be like, can you guess what this children's book title is? And it was just a really fun way to engage people. And we said, hey, by the way, we're starting this book club for staff. Are you interested in getting an email to learn more? So we got a whole long list of people and that's what started it. From that moment, we realized, whoa, there's a lot more people who said yes than we expected. Um, And that's fantastic. Uh, So we wanted to spread it out a little bit further. So we have a intranet, so our inside CHLA webpage. So we got it posted on there. Um, We have a wellness email that goes out every month that's like, hey, here are the things that you can be involved in and that we provide. We made sure that we are included in that as well. And um, from there, we were able to create a very simple form for people to sign up saying, yes, I'm interested in coming. And we said, hey, this is the the first book that we're doing. Um, And really what we found was selecting good stories is kind of like key to, to setting this up right. Making sure that you have formats that will meet people where they are. So we do primarily offer print. Uh, but we also have ebooks and audiobooks on offer as well, because it is ma- it is good to make sure we're meeting people in, in in the space where they're going to be able to receive that the best. Um, and the other part of it is, thankfully, we do already have kind of a system in place since we gift so many books to patients and families, but we offer these books for free. So we did have a cap and. Because we've been growing and growing, we keep increasing the cap every single time. And we hit the cap and they're like, oh, no, you don't have any more free books. But we make sure we provide these books for free to our staff. Um, It just simplifies that one more pain point. And then for our in-person sessions, we offered free lunch. Because if we're saying, hey, you have maybe at most an hour, and that includes walking from where you work to where we are and back, you don't have time to get your lunch, warm it up, buy it. So um, I know there's been studies that have shown providing that during um, uh, it, these sort of events really is important. So we we included free lunch for our in-person sessions as well.
4: Yeah, I still giggle about the person who admitted to us. She's like, "I almost didn't come, but then I didn't want to leave my sandwich.'
5: We're <laughs> like, well,
4: we're glad you made it. Um, I think also showing them that, I think it's so important that clinicians not only hear you tell them, but also feel like we are never gonna waste your time. So we actually really structure our book club meetings. It really isn't like, let's sit in a circle and talk about the book. Um, We provide these polls at the very beginning that are anonymous to kind of get the conversation going. We have them do small group activities. Our very first one had that gallery walk um, with prompts that they got to you know, have, add little post-it notes to. And um, we also have been ending with a reflective individual activity as well. Um, I remember when we did American Born Chinese, we had this self-portrait activity that they could share with the group if they wanted to, but it could also stay personal. We also are making sure we're doing both online and in person. And that's been fun to see change because our very first book club was only in person March, 2020, like lockdown really did happen a couple of days after. And then we had to do more online. But with our very last book club, just in October, we had the most people in person again. and It's just such an exciting return to, oh, is normal too strong of a word? Um, right. What is that? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, and we're also um, being really different in the times that we offer. Um, Our lunchtime meetings are really popular, but we're also providing early evening, uh, and that can also be accommodating to the night shift, um, which is always a challenge to reach.
2: Um, Your
6: book club honors the concept that multicultural children's literature serves as mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, um, and youth see themselves and their experiences in books. Um, And of course that concept was introduced by Professor Rudine Sims Bishop and it's one that librarians are very familiar with. Um, And so you both alluded a little bit to how you select books. Um, How did did mirrors, windows and sliding glass doors really inform the books that were chosen for this pilot? And and how was it decided that you would do literature that's geared for young people um, for a book club for adults?
5: Yeah. I think it really just starts at at the fact that these are values that are really intrinsically already um, embedded in both literally healing and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I mean, Los Angeles is such a wonderfully diverse um, city, county California is such a diverse state. And then, you know, as a hospital, we really do serve um, not only, you know, our local diverse population, but also a, a global population as well. So it's really embedded in in what we do within our hospital and what our values are. Uh, and, and then in literally healing, what's really wonderful is this really cascades down into the program. So for us, you know, one of the first things is we really want to let kids be able to pick their own books. That's a big part of what we do. We don't say, you know, hi, six-year-old boy, this is the book that you are receiving. We're really saying, hi, child, you know, uh, or not even child. It could, it could be a young, young adult because we do see uh, <laughs> older older kids and, and young adults at CHLA as well. But, we, you know, we say hi. What kind of book do you want? Because they might want a book that that is a mirror or a window or a sliding glass door. We want them to be able to make that choice because in healthcare, especially pediatrics, decisions and the ability to make those choices are removed from a lot of your day to day. So it's one little thing that we do is providing that back to them by saying, we're providing you, it might be small, but this opportunity to have choice. Um, And then within the program, we've really made it a priority to figure out where can we take strong considerations of this. So we uh, are very mindful of the diversity of books and the characters inside of the books. Um, that was kind of phase one, and then phase two was really going, we also need to think about the voices that are writing and illustrating the books and making sure those are also diverse as well. So we actually track that. So within our, um, so we, we receive books both by purchasing and by donation. So when we purchase, we actually track whether or not the book um, meets certain criteria in terms of fitting into our DEI standards and um, what our goals are. Um, and within that, we also have an entire section within our library that is our DEI, it's our, our heritage cultural uh, book cart. And so it, it changes and updates every month. Uh, and We really make sure that we really highlight and uh, focus on some really important stories within that space. And then on our kind of normal recreational shelf, we have, um, we really try to emphasize our any child books. So really making sure that our, our patients and our families are seeing themselves reflected in those stories, whether it's in English, whether it's Spanish or bilingual, uh, or whether it's any other world language. We we do have a lot of different languages spoken at our hospital, and we make sure we have books in, in those uh, languages as well. So it's kind of already embedded in what we do within our program. Um, And one of the other areas that's really, once again, unique to the hospital environment is we have a therapeutic library where we have books that help explain difficult diagnoses, prognoses, procedures, associated feelings, and ACEs. And these books are going to really help a lot of our uh, patients and family members see themselves reflected in um, kind of this medical world, which isn't seen. um, You're seeing it a lot more actually now, but especially in a lot more kind of classical literature, you're not seeing it reflected as much with, you know, a kid being able to see themselves in the wheelchair, being able to see another kid who has also lost their hair, um, seeing someone who's going through uh, some sort of similar treatment or uh, has a similar diagnosis as them. And it really helps them say, hey, that's me. I'm I'm seen and reflected in this, so it's it's diversity for us also really includes that that healthcare space where we serve uh, with our patients.
4: Yeah, and and in the beginning is a true pilot. It really was what books do we happen to have? And (laughs) I was so happy. We started with the one and only Ivan. Um, But it really was because that as beautiful and wonderful, that's a Newbery winning book. Um, Given some of the plot, it can be really hard um, to read as an inpatient hospitalized child. So we got to start with that out of this is what we have and we're glad we have it. But then from there, we were really interested with budget to say, how can we respond to the world around us? Um, Choosing the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse in January, 2021, when we all just really wanted a hug um, was chosen on purpose. Um, We did the young adult version of stamped from the beginning in June, um, in responding to the world around us. And and we got similar feedback from our participants. Um, They were looking for diverse voices and stories. And I feel like um, we've really been able to provide that. Again, the real thing we're looking for with our books that we're selecting are these middle grade and young adult books. And the real reason we're choosing these, we have three reasons. One is that these are accessible books. When you're a tired clinician, The last thing I want to give you is, hey, here's some Dostoevsky, you know, that'll that'll perk you up. Um, So the fact that they can tell us, I read a whole third of this book in one setting. Um, There's still that like joy of accomplishment. So we love that these are shorter books, easier to read, that really can pack a punch to them. Um, Our second reasons are the relevance. I mean, these are books that reflect the experiences of our patients and families that we're seeing here. And lastly, these are beautiful books that we're selecting. Um, I think almost every single one we've chosen so far is an award winner in some way. So even just letting adults know that beautiful books exist for young people is is kind of the subtext
6: of of what we're doing as well. And you touched, you both touched upon this a little bit, but if libraries wanna start this kind of book club for healthcare workers in their communities, um, what recommendations do you have? What kinds of partners should they seek out um, what considerations should they take? Um, is there anything that you two learned um, in the feedback that you know you wished you had done differently or um, applied in your program?
4: Yeah, and I would just say, yeah, we're we're continuing to evolve as Hardback Life, a book club for staff. Um, but I think my first tip is don't be scared of trying books for young people. I mean, the other thing we've done is we table to give out people their books and people coming by being like, oh, this book's for kids. And we're like, oh, but you can read it too. Um, or having people come by saying, I love this book. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're reading it. Um I think if you win them over with a couple of books, they'll they'll be less scared as readers to try books for young people. Um I think it's important too, to have a structured approach to that book club, um, allowing room for people to take it where they want to. Um, We give them prompts in their small book clubs, but book discussions, sorry. Um, And we're very much like, but if you don't wanna use these, do what you want. Um, And also just remembering too, that some people come for book clubs really to listen and reflect. And just because you don't hear from everybody doesn't mean the book club was a failure big, big thing I would tell everyone though, is in the hospital setting, you have to plan for attrition. It isn't, people don't show up to your book club because they don't want to. It's simply sometimes I got to help out on my unit. I got to get this grant deadline in. Um, I, I think looking at our data for over a couple of years now, it's just attrition's just a matter of fact for this setting. And there's things you can do to minimize it, but it's it's not a sign of failure. It's a sign of you work in a hospital.
0: Next episode, we're celebrating the end of 2022 with our annual year-end author chats, featuring never-before-released clips from interviews American Libraries conducted throughout the year. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode? Let us know! We welcome feedback and hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening.